This is a Federal News Network podcast. When soliciting bids under a task order contract, the government is not obligated to have full-on negotiations. Contracting officers can have interchanges with bidders, but even those have to be done fairly, or else bidders are likely to protest, as the Navy found out recently. Procurement attorney Joseph Petrillo brings us this case, and, well, tell us what happened here. Well, good morning, Tom. Here, this is a uh, task order competition. The Navy had a multiple award umbrella contract vehicle, and the contractors got to compete for various task orders. This was a very large task order for maintenance and logistics support for adversary aircraft. Basically, they were keeping the F-5 and F-16 fleet up and running so it could perform training for Navy aviators as adversary aircraft. So, yeah, these are some older stuff that they wanted to keep going and uh, presumably have some cost control on the maintenance required. Well, yeah, although I have to say it was a multi-year task order valued at about half a billion dollars. So this was a very large task order. The evaluation factors were five in number. Three of them were pass-fail, task order administration, contract experience, and small business participation. So offerors had to get over those three hurdles by passing the evaluation for those factors. So there was no grading. It was just yes or no on those factors. On those factors. But there were two more factors where there was going to be a best value trade-off. And those two were cost price and program execution. So the Navy was going to figure out what was the best value trading off those two other additional factors. After the evaluation, it awarded a task order to Vertex Aerospace. Two other offerors protested to GAO. Now, there's a limit below which you cannot protest a task order to GAO, and, and for defense procurements, that's $25 million, but this is well over that. So in the midst of that protest, the Navy decided to take corrective action. It did. It did another award decision and reaffirmed the award to Vertex. At that point, AECOM protested, and they objected to the award, and they raised multiple issues at GAO. But one issue turned out to be critical. And as you mentioned in the run-up to this, it was the issue about the discussions between the Navy and the offerors and whether they were fair. And these discussions specifically are called interchanges in a task order situation. They're not negotiations. Well, that's what the Navy called them here. It's not a term used in the regulations, but it's an appropriate term because when you have discussions or negotiations or other communications between offerors under a Part 15 classic negotiated procurement, that's a different type of situation in that you have specific regulations that set forth procedures. Here in the task order environment, you don't have that, but In this case, the solicitation said that those negotiations had to be fair. And I think that's probably the minimum that would be required in any event. So were they fair? In this instance, there were interchanges with both Vertex and AECOM. In the case of Vertex, the Navy said, look, you failed to fully price out your labor hours. That was a big deal because that rendered its proposal noncompliant with one of the solicitation requirements. So the Navy let Vertex submit a revised proposal to correct that, and they did. And it had a significant increase on price, which went up by about $20 million. Vertex also, since it was submitting a revised proposal, changed other parts of its proposal, such as program execution and small business participation. So Vertex got a fairly robust 
interchange and discussion process with the Navy. In contrast, AECOM had an interchange from the Navy in which they just asked about an unclear element in contract experience. They wanted something clarified. The Navy allowed AECOM to clarify that so they understood that part of the contract experience reference, but it couldn't change other aspects of its proposal. Now, the significance of all that is when it came down to the award decision, the prices were very close. The price-cost evaluation was very close, and they both, Vertex and AECOM, had an overall rating of satisfactory confidence for program execution. The tipping factor, however, was that AECOM's proposal had something in the evaluation of program execution. It's not discussed in the GAO decision, but there's some aspect of that which the Navy felt decreased its confidence in their ability to perform and execute properly. We're speaking with procurement attorney Joseph Petrillo of Smith Pactor McWhorter. Yeah, so a confidence decreaser somehow came into the AECOM proposal. What did GAO decide then? Well, GAO said, look, that was the deciding factor for making the award to Vertex versus AECOM, which were otherwise very closely evaluated. And since that was the deciding factor, and AECOM had never had an opportunity to correct it or revise its proposal, that meant the exchanges with AECOM were unfair compared to those with Vertex, because Vertex was given an opportunity to change something in its proposal that would have made it unacceptable for evaluation. And we don't know what the confidence decreaser that the Navy had against AECOM, we don't know what that was, do we? Right. Well, because this is a situation where there's not been a final award, the competition is ongoing, there has to be a lot of sensitivity about what information is released in the decision because it might influence the competition. You know, that being said, there's a fair amount of information in this decision. So the protest prevailed in that Vertex did not get the award, and now the whole thing is reopened. Well, it isn't clear that the whole thing is reopened. GAO recommended that the Navy reopen interchanges with AECOM, tell it about the confidence decreaser, and give AECOM an opportunity to submit a revised proposal to try to make things fair vis-a-vis what happened with Vertex. It isn't clear what other things the Navy could or couldn't do based on the decision. Yeah, so the lesson learned here is what then? Even though you're conducting a task order procurement, it's not subject to the you know classic FAR Part 15 rules. Uh, you still need to conduct fair evaluations. In this case, it's kind of interesting. GAO looked at what the ultimate factors were that determined award, and it used that analysis to determine whether or not the evaluations uh, and, and probably interchanges and discussions were fair with the offerors. I'm not sure that an agency is going to know that ultimate result as this proceeds. So it's probably going to require the agency, this decision, to have fairly equal discussions with all the offerors as it's ongoing, because I'm not sure they can foresee which factors are going to be determinative at the end of the evaluation. Got it. So, yeah, treat everyone equally, and if an issue comes up in a exchange with one, bring it up with the other, and then you've covered your bases. Well, yeah, you've got to discuss with each offeror that issue that's relevant and important for its evaluation. Joe Petrillo is a procurement attorney with Smith, Pactor, and McWhorter. As always, thanks so much. Thank you, Tom.
We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome, and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, You think about a pandemic, for example, that has placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And and the idea that we don't have the human interaction, uh, which I think is very important when you think about the empathy that is a a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented a terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to, be, uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions uh, on those on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina, uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a rural school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black. Literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream, which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define 
how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to to fight for change. And that was that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there have been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, 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 the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina. A very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it, it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha- Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community, uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think, with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life? And what quality... Did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values. But the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream which we often define and think of his big I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges is seeing a forest despite the trees. It's seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that, that attribute, I think, is one that, that I embody. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills. And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. 
I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce, and I, I, my office was on the floor, the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Jane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government and providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work is done. And, um, and, 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 and so I think that's a lesson for me. If there was some advice and counsel I could give is to continue to do your work, but, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. Everything's getting more expensive these days. Gas, rent, and even your music. While other music services keep jacking up their prices, Live One is letting you lock in the best music membership at the best price. Live One Plus is just $3.99 per month. Get all your favorite music ad-free, along with unlimited skips and maximum audio quality. Beat inflation with the best deal in music at just $3.99 per month. Visit liveone.com slash best music to get Live One Plus now. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, Always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online.